Good morning. Third time's a charm. Can you hear me? Good morning. Hal David and Burt Bacharach wrote a song way back in 1965 that was very popular. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. No, not just for some, but for everyone, it's the only thing there's just too little of. And I think we would all agree that what the world needs is love, and there's too little of it. But that's not a new message. Paul actually wrote his song of love 1,900 years ago, and it's 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that tells us of the necessity of love. And this is perhaps the most popular chapter in the Bible. And so it's a song that's still at the top of the charts, the love chapter. Now, love is a word that's used lightly today. I heard about a little girl who went over to spend the night with her friend, and so the friend's mother was getting ready to serve supper, and she said, do you like broccoli? And the little girl said, I love broccoli. So they passed the broccoli around the table. She didn't take any. And the mother said, well, I thought you said you love broccoli. And she said, I do love broccoli, but not enough to eat it. <laughs> we say, I love strawberries, but they give me a rash. We say, I love pizza. I love my dog. I love my car. I love my wife. And she wonders if you love the dog more than her. We use the word love for sex today. We talk about making love. We talk about falling in love and falling out of love. And so we have this word love, and it has this broad spectrum of meaning. The Greeks had a better idea. They had specific words for specific kinds of love. They had a a word, storge. That's the word you would use if you said, I love my country. It was storge, love. They had a word, eros. We get, get our word erotic from that, but it, but it isn't just erotic. It was a romantic kind of love. So when you told your girlfriend, I love you, you would choose that word because it spoke of romantic love. They had a word, phileo, which means natural love or family love. We're familiar with that word because we have the city of Philadelphia. Delphia is the Greek word for brother, and so that is the city of brotherly love, phileo. But then there's another word, and that is the word agape. And Jesus really elevated that word to a word that is unique in the Christian community. It's the love of God and the love that we share as believers. Let me give you my definition of agape love. It's desiring the very best for the one loved, no matter what it costs, and expecting nothing in return. It's the des- desiring the very best. It's not necessarily what you want. It's what you need. God loves me. He doesn't give me everything I want. 
because he knows what I need. So it's desiring the very best for the other person. No matter what it costs me, I'll pay any price. And expecting nothing in return, it's unconditional love. Now, having told you the definition, being able to define it doesn't mean you've got it. Because we don't get this love mentally. We get this love really experientially by receiving it from God and by sharing it with other people. That's why the Bible says in Ephesians 3.19, Paul is praying, he says, he prays that we might know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. So we've got to know this love that can't be known. And so the definition alone doesn't mean you've got it. It's experiential. And I might also add that today we usually think of love as more emotional. In the Bible, love is never an emotion. We say love is a warm puppy. Or, you know, you give somebody a car, it's got that kind of gushy, mushy, mushy, dishy stuff. We think that's love. What's the Bible say? For God so loved the world that he what? Gave his only son. See, it was action-oriented. Not an emotion. It doesn't say God so loved the world that he got goose pimples. Doesn't say God so loved the world that he got all gushy. Doesn't say God so loved the world that he sat up in heaven and sang kumbaya. God so loved the world that he gave the ultimate that he could give. He gave the highest cost. He desired the very best for you no matter what it cost him. And he expected nothing in return. And that's probably why you can search through your Bible and you will not find a definition of love in Scripture. You say, well, Dan, down here in verse 4 of chapter 13, it says love is. Well, if you look at that, it says love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. That's not a definition. That's a description of love. There is no definition in Scripture of love. Love is not defined in Scripture. It is demonstrated in Scripture. That's why Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us. And and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's why it says in 1 John 3, 16, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. Love is demonstrated. And what is the demonstration of love? It's the cross. Where God desired the very best for us, no matter what it cost him, expecting nothing in return. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Who loved me, past tense. used to bother me when I read that. Says God loved me. I said, don't you love me anymore? Ephesians 2 says, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us. Why is loved in the past tense when he talks about love? Well, he tells us. He says he loved us and gave himself for us, the cross. 
He loved us, and gave, or loved me, and gave himself for me. So it's, what he's saying is, if God loved me so much, is this working? Okay. This, is this working? Can you hear me? All right. I'll stay here. If I wander off, tell me. His point is, God loved you at the cross. And if he loved you that much, then you don't have to worry about love again. He has demonstrated it to the max. And when we look at the cross, we know that God loved us. And there is no question anymore. Well, let me show you some verses. Look, leave 1 Corinthians 13 because we don't have time to get into it today. Look at Revelation chapter 5. Chapter 5 of Revelation, verse 6. John says, And I saw between the throne, or literally in the middle of the throne, I saw in the middle of the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. John gets the opportunity on behalf of us all to see what's in the middle of the throne of the universe. And what is it? You expect a king. What do we see? A lamb standing as if slain. And that's Jesus. And then you turn over a page to chapter 7 of Revelation and verse 17. And he says, for the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I love this because it tells me what what is the lamb standing as if slain? That is the picture of sacrificial love. And he's telling us that sacrificial love is at the center of of the throne of the universe. That God rules from a cross. That where we would expect to find the king demanding, we find the lamb standing as if slain. So yes, he loved us in the past, but he continues to love us in that same loving, sacrificial way every day. You know, not only does God demonstrate love, but the Bible tells us in 1 John 4, verses 8 and 16, God is love. That's a great verse. God is love, which tells me that love is not an occasional mood he gets into. God is not up in heaven, you know, pulling the little uh, petals off a flower and going... I love you, I love you not. I love you, I love you not. He is love. So he's always love. Every time you go to God, he is love. My kids were smart enough, before they asked me an important question, they would wait till after I ate. Because I'd be in a better mood. 
We don't have to wait for God to get in a mood to come to Him. You can never think about God without thinking about love because God is love. He doesn't have office hours. Every time you come to Him, God is love. He doesn't send love. He doesn't just manufacture love. He doesn't produce love. He is love. Every time you come to Him, God desires the very best for you, no matter what it costs Him, expecting nothing in return. Wow. When I was in Bible college, I had a girlfriend. Some of you may be shocked. She, she put in my mailbox one day a little note to try to encourage me. And the little note said, uh, God loves Danny Green just as much as he loves Jesus Christ. And I looked at that note and I thought, that doesn't sound right. I mean, obviously she's dating me, so she doesn't know a whole lot about the Bible. In fact, I looked at that, and I thought, that sounds blasphemous, that God would love me as much as he loves Jesus. So I went to the Scripture because I wanted to go to her and say, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh. And I found this Scripture in John chapter 17. John chapter 17. And verse 23. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me. And then notice this. And loved them even as you have loved me. What's that say? God loves Danny Green just as much as he loves Jesus Christ. Wow. First John four nineteen says, We love because he first loved us. And and there is a sense in which our love is reciprocal. But, you know, that doesn't mean that you just say, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, and you're going to go out and love everybody and love God. He loved me first, and so I respond to that love. But the Bible actually tells me a lot more than that. In fact, if you look at the last verse of John 17, there's another great statement Jesus is praying to the Father, and he says, I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them. See, it's not just that God loved me, and I get real motivated by his love that I start loving him back. God has taken that love, and he has placed it inside of me. So that tells me that I have the capacity to love like God loves. Wow. I'm saying wow a lot today. Romans 5, 5 
says the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is in us. God has taken His love. He just didn't give you a little bit. He's poured it out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is in us. So let me ask you a question. If the love of God is poured out in your heart and it's not getting out to other people, what's blocking it in your life? I heard somebody say what Christians need is some spiritual Drano, some, some spiritual liquid plumber, you know, to, to release that love. It's there. You have the capacity to love like God loves. That's amazing. Now, what does that mean? Well, let me tell you a couple things it means. Number one, it means it's the evidence in your life to other people that you're saved. Love is the evidence. God, God is love. God has poured his love out inside of you. If you're really a believer, then that ought to be evident to other people. Look back at John 13, and notice what Jesus says in verse 34. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Same love. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, I think we often misread this verse. Because how do we figure out if somebody's really a disciple of Jesus? We say, well, does he have his doctrine right? He's got to be a believer. He carries that big black Bible around. He's a disciple. You're a disciple if you can define justification and sanctification and premillennialism and dispensationalism. Or we say, does he drink or smoke or chew or go with girls who do? That's the measure of a Christian. Listen, the evidence of a disciple of Jesus is that you love like Jesus. You say, well, Dan, I, I believe in Jesus, but I, I don't really love people. Well, 1 John 4, 8 says, the one who does not love does not know God. That doesn't sound optional to me. If you don't love, you don't know God. So it is the evidence to other people that you're saved. Secondly, it's the evidence to yourself that you're saved. Look at 1 John chapter 3.
1 John 3, verse 13. John says, do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. And then verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. Before I was a Christian, I couldn't stand Christians. In fact, verse 13 says that's normal. You actually hate Christians. There are these lights, and you don't want to be near the light. So before I'm a Christian, I hate Christians. Now, I love you guys that I used to hate. And what does that tell me? It tells me that I'm saved. Because you guys aren't all that lovable sometimes. And I'm not very loving. about the teacher in Sunday school class who asked how many of you want to go to heaven and everybody raised their hand but one little boy and so he said Joey you don't want to go to heaven and he said well not if all these other guys are going to be there <laughs> you say I'm a Christian and I love the Lord but I really have kind of a problem with his kids. It's like Snoopy who said, I love humanity. It's people I can't stand. Look at chapter 4 of 1 John, verse 20. This is a verse for you if you feel that way. He says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother... He is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. It's easy to love God. A little harder to love your tangible brother and sister in Christ. It's easy to love God. He doesn't annoy you. He doesn't do stupid things. He doesn't squeeze the toothpaste in the middle. He, he never offends you. It's easy to love God. But he says, if you really love God, the evidence is you're going to love his children. Very practical. Often hear people say, Lord... How can I ever express my love for you? He's already told you. Love his kids. Love your brothers and sisters. That's the way you show your love for God. Is to love the rest of the family. That's why when I write a letter, I never write, I love you in the Lord. I mean, it's true. But I always get those letters and I think, if I wasn't in the Lord, are you telling me something? I mean, I love you, period. Because that's the love of God. I have two brothers. I love them both. 
but I didn't choose them. You know, they just kind of come along. There they are. Okay? We got to make this relationship work. It didn't always work well. That's the way it is in the family of Christ. He doesn't say, love your brother if he's cool. Love your brother if he loves you back. Love your brother if you have kind of matching personalities. No, we have all kinds of personalities, all kinds of people in the body of Christ. We have high maintenance, low maintenance, everything else you can think of. We're to love them all because that's the love of God. And his love desires the very best no matter what it costs me and expecting nothing in return. If you're in 1 John, let me just tell you, in 1 John, there are three tests of a Christian. And I want you to mark these if you've never marked them. First test of a Christian in 1 John is the theological test. Look at chapter 5 and verse 13. He says, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. The theological test of whether you're a believer, here's how you know, you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That's the theological test. But there's a second test in 1 John, and that's the moral test. Look at chapter 2 and verse 3. He says, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. You got the theological test. Yes, you believe the right thing. You believe that Jesus is the Son of God. But secondly, there's a moral test, and that is you obey him. You follow Christ. And then there's a third test, and that's the social test in chapter 3 and verse 14. Again, he uses the same word. We know that we have passed out of death into life. How? Because we love the brethren. Theological test, Jesus is the Son of God. Moral test, I obey him. Social test, I love my brothers and sisters. What's interesting is that John places equal weight on all three of those. On the theological test, look at chapter 2 and verse 22. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? If you flunk the theological test, you're a liar. Look at chapter 2 and verse 4. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is what? A liar. Ah, if you flunk the moral test and you're not obeying him, you're a liar. And then chapter 4 and verse 20 in the verse we read earlier. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. So if you say you're a Christian and you fail the theological test or the moral test or the social test, John is a lot more blunt than I am. He says, you're lying. That's how important it is. 
love expressed in your life is just as significant as your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, let's get practical. How do you love your brother? How do you, how do you show this love? Jesus said in Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine, 39, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's real simple. How do you love yourself? Well, you say, Dan, I really don't love myself. Yes, you do. Who's the first person you look for in a group photo? Who's the person you typically think about first in any situation? So Jesus said, here's how you love your neighbor. Just love him the way you love yourself. You're already loving yourself. I don't have to tell you to do that. You're doing it. You did it this morning. You got up, you brushed your teeth, washed your face, combed your hair if you have any, fed your stomach, made sure you were dressed nice, made sure you're comfortable, made sure you're safe. He says, now just do that same thing for your brother and sister. Be worried about whether they have food, whether they're comfortable, whether they're safe. You love your neighbor as yourself. Or here's another way to look at it. If you're still in 1 John, look at chapter 3 and verse 16. John 3.16 is a familiar verse. 1 John 3.16 is a great verse. It says, We know love by this, that He laid down His life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. What is love? Love is laying down your life for your brother and sister. You say, well, if I ever get the opportunity, I'll try to remember that. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about jumping in front of a train. He's talking very practically, and we know that because look at the next verse, verse 17. He says, whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him How does the love of God abide in him? See, the love of God lays down my life. And if I see my brother in need and I close up my heart, John asks the question, how is that the love of God? See, if you lay down your life, if you died today, what would you no longer have? You would not have any more plans, any more desires. You would not have any more money, you would not have any more time, you would not have any more possessions. So all he's saying is, lay those things down now in a practical way for your brother. When your brother needs your time, lay it down. If your brother needs food, lay it down. If your brother needs your possessions and you've got them, lay them down. That's laying down your life for your brother a handful at a time in a practical way. 
And then look at verse 18. He says, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Love is not talk. Love is walk. We're not to love in word. We're to love in deed. If I looked in the mirror this morning in the bathroom and I had kind of, you know, that sleep in my eye and, and uh, you know, a little snotty nose and, and uh, my hair was all messed up. And I looked in the mirror and I said, I love you. I can't tell you how much I love you. And then I walked away and didn't fix anything. That's not love. Sometimes we talk a lot about how much we love everybody. But love's very practical. Love is not talking about it. Love is acting on it. Now that's not to say you're not to say I love you. It's kind of like the, the husband who'd been married 20 years and his wife said he never tells me he loves me. And she said, well, I told you I loved you when we got married and if I change my mind, I'll let you know. That's not good enough. We need to be telling each other we're loving them. That's fine, but we also need to make sure we're not stopping there, that we are showing them our love, because love is action. Look at John 17 again. I'll wind this up. Another benefit of love. It's in John 17. Again, Jesus' prayer. Notice what he says in verse 21. And verse 20 says he's talking about us. He says that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. And then verse 23. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me. How will the world know that the Father sent Jesus into the world? Jesus says they will know by our love and our unity. When we express the kind of love that only comes from God in a real, tangible way that people can see, Jesus is saying, not only will your brothers and sisters notice that, but the world will notice that, and they will be attracted to that because what the world needs now is love, and they know they need love, and when they see that reality in you as you relate to each other as believers, they are drawn to that love, and they will know the theology when they see the practical love. I got a friend named George Malone. He used to say the best program for evangelism is hug your brother. Hug your brother. If I'm telling people how much God loves them and they don't see that love in my life, I may be better off to keep my mouth shut. Because the platform for sharing the gospel is the reality of that love in my life and through my life to other people. 
And then there's a great verse in Hebrews 10.24. It says we're to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Stimulate one another to love. That word stimulate means to provoke. Most of us are good at provoking. He says provoke your brothers and sisters to love. You see, when I get my love, God's love in me, and I start letting it flow out to other people, If I really love you because I want what's best for you, then I will start stimulating you, provoking you so that that love is expressed in your life as well because I'm never satisfied that it's just in me or just in a certain part of the body. I want to see it in everyone. That's the way love operates. Some of us provoke each other to punch punch us. We need to be provoking one another to love. Love is desiring the very best for the one love, no matter what it costs me, and expecting nothing in return. God loves us. He has placed that love inside of us, and we are to express it in action. Love is not an elective course in the Christian curriculum. It is not optional. In fact, it is the prominent characteristic of a believer. And I said I wasn't going to get into 1 Corinthians chapter 13, but let me just, let's just dip our toe in it. 1 Corinthians 13. Let me just read the first three verses. I won't comment about them, I'll just summarize them. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, And if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. That's tough stuff. You know, this this is a verse that most people, a chapter, most people think about this chapter as being real flowery. You know, you you hear this read at weddings, and and it's it's like a beautiful flower, and you, you hate to tear it apart because it's so beautiful, but this has teeth. What's he saying in the first three verses? He's telling us that love is not just a high ideal. Love is not just important. Love is not just something we need to get around to. Love is essential. Love is the bottom line. Love is the essence of life. And the basic message in these first three verses is this. I don't care what your spiritual gift is. I don't care what your ministry is. I don't care what your title is. I don't care what you do. I don't care what you say. I don't care what you know. If love is not the major contribution of your life, you make no contribution. Now, I don't know how that strikes you, but that gets in my kitchen. 
And that challenges me to the depths of my heart to say, God, just because I can quote Bible verses, just because when people ask me where a verse is, I can show them, doesn't mean anything to God. He wants to see the reality of his love flowing out of my life in practical ways every day. And if I'm not doing that, I'm zero. I'm going to have the praise team come back. We're going to sing that song, How Deep the Father's Love. I'm going to ask you to stand as we sing. I don't know how God has spoken to you today, but I want you to respond in your heart to him. And if you're here today and God has spoken to you, his invitation to you today may be that you need to go to somebody in the body of Christ and say, brother, sister, we need to reconcile our relationship. We need to get real about our love for each other. That may be his invitation to you this morning. Or as you stand there, you need to just get honest with him about what it is in your life that's blocking his love from flowing out of you and confess those things to the Lord so that it starts happening. And I know there are some folks that want to join today. You come forward as we sing together. But to sing this song together, let's be honest before God about what he's telling us.